we looked at the question of grace. And we learned that sola gratia affirms that our whole relationship with God, any good thing that we get from God comes on the basis of grace alone, that we have nothing to contribute. There is no merit that we can bring to the table that puts us in a position to be more likely to receive grace or less likely. You do not contribute to God's decision to give you grace. It is of his free and sovereign will. And so that brings us to this week. And admittedly, sola gratia and sola fide go Go, go right next to each other. You see it in our passage today. Verse 8, For by grace you were saved through faith. So there is a very close connection. Uh, but, but what I want to do, I'm, I tried to do it last week and I want to try to do it again, is even though they are very, very close and they're connected, they are, they are intertwined concepts, nonetheless, I think they deserve to be looked at separately. And so I'm going to try to separate like I did last week. And so to this week, we're going to be talking primarily, what does it mean when we assert sola fide, or faith alone? Now remember that everything else we've been talking about and are going to talk about are things that flowed from an inquiry into the question. But this right here gets to the heart of the question that was at the core of the Reformation. How are we made right With God. How can a guilty conscience have peace knowing that they are accepted by God? How can I have right standing with God? That was the driving question. That was the thing that everybody was talking about. To use medical terminology, it was the presenting problem. You know how sometimes you're sick? You feel an ache somewhere, whatever, and you go to the doctor looking for a solution to that particular thing. And then once you're there, the doctor starts doing these examinations and tests and all that, and they discover other things. Well, that's the relationship of sola fide to the other solas. Sola fide drove them to the doctor, and as they were investigating and looking to uncover the whole problem, the scope of the issue, these other matters were brought to light. So right here at Sola Fide, we are at the heart of the Christian message. In fact, we could say it's the heart of the gospel. The doctrine of Sola Fide addresses head-on how it is that we are justified in the sight of God. Specifically, how do sinners who are under condemnation go to being sons and daughters of God. How does that happen? The Bible makes much of faith. In the Gospels, the faith word group is used 98 times. You must believe. In the epistles, it's used 143 times. Faith is a big deal. And I used to think, based upon what I was taught, that the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages, and even now, teaches that you're saved by works. I remember being taught that Rome doesn't believe in faith, that you're saved by works. And that's kind of slanderous, actually, because they do believe that you need faith. If you don't have faith, nothing matters. You have to have faith. 
But the key was they asserted and still assert that you're not saved by faith alone. And we'll dive into that in a little bit. What we mean when we say that we are saved by faith alone is that the sole instrumental cause of our justification is faith. Faith is the condition of salvation. If you have faith, you are saved. If you do not have faith, you are not Okay, it is the condition. We see this in Romans 10.9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. Conversely, for those who do not believe, what does John 3.18 say? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Okay? Faith is the instrumental cause of salvation. It's the condition that must be met for salvation to occur. Now, this right here opens up a can of worms for some people. Well, if faith is what I have to do to be saved, if faith originates from me, if you're telling me that I have to believe, then you're telling me then to conjure up something. You're telling me to decide to initiate. And if that's the case, then really, isn't faith just the ultimate good work? And so isn't faith a work? And then isn't salvation then by works? The answer is no. Remember, last week we spent a lot of time talking about what the Bible says about the human heart. What does the Bible say about the human heart? We'll just look at our passage. Verse 1, you were dead. Okay? Dead people don't believe. Dead people don't do things. They just rot. Okay? We were dead. We followed the course of this world. What does that look like in practice? Basically, that means we're just doing what everybody else is doing. You know, I, I, I remember back reading one of these articles about how people were, you know, being independent thinkers and they're just going with what everybody else is doing. You know, everybody just does, everybody follows the crowd. We just follow the course of this world. We do what we're conditioned to do by this world, which, according then to verse 2, is really following the spirit of the power of the air, the devil, who is at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay, so we were dead. We were following the course of the world, following the spirit of the power of the air, the spirit of the power of the air was at work in us. And so, look at this enslavement language. We were carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Carrying out the desires. It implies that you're in shackles doing what you're told. You weren't a free agent. You weren't this autonomous 
person walking around freely choosing to do whatever you want. The reality that the Bible teaches us is that we were dead and enslaved to the world, to our flesh, and to the devil. And we learn in Romans 8 that the mind that is set on the flesh is dead. It cannot submit to God's law. It cannot please God. But yet we learn in 1 John that the command of God is to believe in his Son. So how does someone who's dead, who the Bible says can't submit, won't submit, you're enslaved to the devil, how do those shackles come off? How does something happen so that you can then keep the commandment of God, which is to believe in the name of his Son? How does that happen? That's where verse 4 of our passage comes in. This is what last week was all about. By grace, God saves you precisely when you can't save yourself. He comes in and does a miracle. This is the miracle that we never even think about. It says right here in verse 5, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. Now right here, when it says made us alive, that's a miracle of resurrection. This is a word that is that other words are used for the same concept. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. When God made us alive right here in verse 5, that is the new birth. He brought you from the dead. He gave you a new heart. He gave you a new mind. He gave you a new inclination. Now what we're about to describe happens in a nanosecond. In fact, you would say that it's one inseparable operation that can be distinguished between steps even though these steps can't be separated from together. And I think the best way to liken it is one of my favorite hobbies, shooting guns. Okay? So you get your, your trusty AR. Uh, what do what you think your weapon of choice? Okay? So I, I got my assault rifle. I mean, it's not an assault rifle. My recreational device. And I'm at the range. And I got a magazine of 30 rounds in the well and I'm locked, and I'm loaded, and I'm ready to fire, okay? You don't squeeze the trigger. That's a recipe for missing whatever you're aiming at. You gently apply pressure, okay? Now, what happens when I pull the trigger? That's a metaphor. It's not what you actually do. You pull the trigger. In an instant, a number of things happen. The firing pin slams into the primer, causing an explosion, Boom, sending the bullet down the barrel, hitting that rifling, spinning. And as, and as you may know, if you know ballistics, a, a bullet actually leaves the barrel traveling in an arc, in an upward motion. Okay, As it's flying out, the gases from the explosion are being fed back into the receiver, pulling the, the charging handle or the, the, the chamber back, ejecting the old shell, recocking the resetting the firing pin, slamming forward with a new round in the chamber, ready for another, tr another trigger squeeze. This happens when you pull the trigger. All that stuff happens in, in, in the blink of an eye. 
You can't stop, you can't remove any part of it. Now, I can, I can distinguish the pulling of the trigger from the hitting of the firing pin, from the, but I can't stop any of it from happening. It, it goes together as one action, one operation. This is what happens with the new birth. God makes you alive. And then in an instant, because you have just heard the word, Romans 10 makes it clear that the new birth comes through hearing from intaking the word. The spirit causes life. And what God does according to verse uh, 8 is he gives faith as a gift. The reason a former enemy of God can become a child of God is because God grants you faith. He grants you belief. We learn that in Rome in Philippians 1.29 where it's been granted to you to believe. You believe because it's given to you. And you are immediately then justified because the condition has been met. So by grace, we're made alive. We place our faith in Christ and we are justified. And then in an instant, we are reconciled and we are adopted and we are given the Holy Spirit who begins right then and there a new work in our life. That happens in an instant. Isn't that amazing? That's awesome. And then that work that's begun, right there, that carries through until the day we close our eyes in, in death. And that's why Paul can be so confident. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And then once we close our eyes, we are transported to the very throne of grace where our souls are perfected awaiting the glorious day of the resurrection where our bodies are indeed renewed and we have perfect, perfect glorification. And that's awesome. All right. So from start to finish, your salvation is of grace. You do not contribute. The faith you have, the faith you exercise is a gift. You can't brag about how smart you were to choose to believe in Jesus because your faith was given to you. That's what's awesome. You can praise God for granting it to you, though. One of the beautiful things is that sola fide reminds us that the good news of the gospel is that the thing God commands, believe in the name of his Son, is the very thing God grants. He gives you the very thing he requires of you. That is awesome. This is why Romans 1.17 was so liberating for Luther. He struggled. How can I be right with God? All my efforts are imperfect. I'm always messing up. Even when I repent, I'm not really repenting hard enough. How can I be perfect then before a perfect God? And his eyes fell upon Romans 1.17 and, and he molded over. And it liberated him when he realized, for in it the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God gives his righteousness, the perfect standing, as a gift by faith. 
But what do we mean by faith? What is faith? Have faith in Jesus. What do we mean? Well, faith that God gives, because faith that is true is a supernatural work of God in your life, the faith that God gives is not mere fleeting mental assent. Biblical faith is a combination of three things. There's knowledge. You have to know the object of your faith. In fact, it is the object of your faith that saves you. It's not just being a person of faith that saves you. It's having faith in a person that saves you. Jesus Christ. You have to have the right belief. That's why it's so important, according to Jude, to contend for the faith once delivered for the saints. The faith, a specific body of content. The propositions of the gospel are vital. So you need to have knowledge. You need to have assent. You need to agree to that knowledge. Okay? I can have knowledge that I disagree with. I can tell you some of the tenets of Islam. I can tell you what Wiccans believe, or at least on paper because they're very fluid. I can tell you about Hinduism. I can tell you about Buddhism. But guess what? I don't agree with any of it. So you got to know it, and you've got to agree with it. Okay, I believe that's true. But unfortunately, too many people who walk around calling themselves Christians have stopped there. Faith or, or knowledge and assent. But I would posit to you that what I have just described, knowledge and assent, is mere demonic faith. James 2.19 tells us that even the demons recognize. And then they shudder. Remember the Gospels, who are always the first one identifying, pointing out the truth about Jesus. It's the demons. Just because you know the facts of Jesus, just because you agree with the facts of Jesus, doesn't mean you have the third element of saving faith. And what is that? Trust. Trust. In Peter, 1 Peter specifically, twice, he, he sort of puts this in the flesh when he speaks of how Jesus entrusted himself to God. And he tells us, to entrust ourselves to the overseer of our souls. Entrust. You see true faith fleshed out in Romans 4 in regards to Abraham. And I want to spend just a moment looking at this. Ephes uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 16 through 22. And I just want to read it because I want to show how trusting faith is. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, 
fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So what we have here is a situation where everything in his experience is telling him that God is not going to produce an heir. You may remember some of the misguided attempts that they came up with to try to bring about an heir. Here, here's a culturally acceptable way. God hasn't provided us a child, but he has provided me a maidservant who's not uh, infertile. So here, Abraham, produce a child through her. And that didn't work out. Oh, Lord, you haven't given me a child, but you have given me a servant. So I'm going to go ahead and bequeath my everything to my servant. Nope. Through your offspring, the promise will be given. And he didn't waver. Hope against hope. He committed himself, body and soul, completely and totally to the promise of God. And his faith was proven precisely because of how ludicrous it looked. Faith becomes faith precisely when you have entrusted yourself to someone and it looks foolish to do so. Now, the faith we have in Christ then is not simply believing that Jesus is or agreeing that he's the Son of God. It's entrusting ourselves to him. That we believe when he says, you cannot see the Father but through me. Accepting the validity of that and then saying, okay, then I give myself to you. Do with me as you will. That is faith. Okay, so as soon as we have faith and we exercise faith in Christ, we are justified. Now, justification is what we would call a forensic declaration of righteousness. Forensic means that it's legal. The language of the judgment and the legal environment of the eschatological judgment is all over the New Testament. And we hear, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Sounds a lot like, a, like the prosecuting attorney, doesn't it? It's God who justifies. No one can bring a charge. You are declared by God to be righteous. And what that means by saying declared, God hasn't done a work in you yet making you righteous. You're not really in your inherent self a righteous person. You're still a wicked, wretched sinner, but God is declaring you to be righteous. He wraps Christ's righteousness around you, crediting to your account saying, this person is righteous in my sight. They have not violated the law. They are perfect. But you're still a sinner. We are simultaneously just by declaration and a sinner by experience. Now right there, though, the Holy Spirit comes in and starts a work. And that's the work of sanctification. The process of God realizing or making true in our experience that which was true by declaration and justification. And so that brings up the question of works. What is the relationship of faith and works? It doesn't take long in the Bible 
to realize that works are a big deal. Okay? The Bible makes much of good works. Uh, But when it comes to justification, being declared right in the sight of God, the Bible is very clear that faith and works are opposed. As it says in Romans 4, 4 and 5, if something is given to you after you have earned it, it's not a gift. It's not grace. It's a wage. Okay? And the righteousness that comes by God is by faith, not through keeping the law. So it is opposed. You are justified only on the basis of faith. But then, with regard to sanctification, your works are a necessary part of the process. I want to be very clear. According to the Bible, good works are not an option. 1 John 3 says it surprisingly strong. What does it say? The one who practices sin is of the devil. Whoa. No one born of God, practices sin. Wow. Even Paul. You know, people oftentimes pit Paul against James. Paul himself talks about the need for good works in Galatians 5. Listen to this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now contrast that with the words of some in this movement known as the free grace movement. The free grace movement says that repentance is not required in the gospel. It actually repudiates the notion of faith that I described, and it limits it to mere assent of facts about Christ. Conversion is simply believing in Jesus. Everything else is an option. So one of their most vocal proponents wrote, how fortunate that one's entrance into the kingdom of God does not depend on discipleship. I thought Jesus said something about if anyone would follow me, he must lay down his life. And Paul here, you won't inherit the kingdom of God if you do these things. I think the Bible disagrees with that. Now here's the deal. And here's where people get all worked up in a frenzy. Then, if the Bible teaches that good works are necessary, in fact, Paul seems to be saying that, that those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, how can Paul say that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and then still say that works are necessary? Cause and relationship of order are essential here. All Faith that is alive produces fruit. All faith that is alive produces fruit. The fruit don't make a tree alive. I don't have life because of my fruit. My fruit simply are evidence that I am alive. 
Okay, think back to that gun going off. Or think about an explosion. An explosion goes off, and it is a fact when an explosion goes off, there's a sound. Boom! You can't separate that. Did the sound cause the explosion? No. The explosion necessarily and unavoidably causes the sound. All faith that is true faith, because it is a work of the Holy Spirit, is a faith that transforms the person. This is what James is talking about, that mere assent without any evidence of of grace in your life, that's a dead faith. It's not a saving faith. So here's what we have to remember. Every good thing that we are called to do in Scripture is simply as an evidence to the saving work that God has done in us that we have received by faith alone. You could sit over here being as godly of a person as you want, being as godly of a person as you can be, and and just have good works piled around you, and that won't give you one iota more favor in God's sight because you are not saved by works. Your mountain of good works is simply evidence that the faith you have is real. Now, we evaluate sanctification and growth in godliness in terms of years. It's like a mighty oak tree. It takes years for that tree to grow. You don't come back six weeks later, oh, wow, it's grown. You won't see anything. You've got to look at it over the course of years. And that's how godliness is in our lives. But it is equally true. That if you can look back over your life and and, and some aspect of the gospel appealed to you, but you aren't seeing any evidence of the Spirit in your life, there's no growth, then repent. Because what you have is not saving faith. You're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. But those who are clinging desperately to Jesus... Rest. Rest. You're saved by grace through faith. And the good works will come. Necessarily. Because that faith you have is of the Holy Spirit. And He's the one doing the work in you. He's working and willing for His good pleasure. And so we work out the salvation, not work for it. And it will come. It will come. There are some of you, I think who are so wound tight and you're afraid to do something. You're afraid that if you mess up, that this is evidence that I'm not one of God's children, that I'm not really saved. I'll be rejected. I think it's possible that you're actually listening to the voice of the accuser. You see, he doesn't just want you to be a, a, a running around like a crazy person. He, he just simply wants you to, to walk a fearful life, thinking that your works are going to separate you from the love of God. And so the devil is the one whispering in your ear, you better not mess up. Tell the devil to get out of here. Let your hair down a little, lighten up, relax, and live a little. 
You're saved by grace through faith. And the good works will come naturally. You know how when you're dating and you're trying to impress someone, you're trying so hard to be impressive, you start a new job, you want to impress everybody? And that's not the real you. Anyone can, can fake it for a little while. After you get to know someone and you see how they naturally are, the funniest people are the ones who don't try to be funny. They just are. Well, that's how true good works are. They just come from a life that is celebrating that my works really, in one sense, don't matter. They're just evidence. But they are evidence. So, do you believe? Do you think that your works contribute to God's accepting you? That's wrong. But, at the same time, because you believe, you can look back over your life and see the trail of grace that God has been doing because he's been making you more like Jesus. Faith alone says that you are not justified by your works. But the faith that saves alone is not alone. So you can look back and rejoice in all the good things that God has done in you. Let's pray.